I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to uh, two openings of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1 and uh, Luke chapter 10. We've been uh, teaching for uh, several weeks on uh, the subject of spiritual dominion, and I want to conclude that series this morning and kind of wrap some things up. We've been using as a, um, um, a text scripture, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, which speaks of the creation. It tells what God's original plan for man was, why he created man to begin with. Genesis 1:26, it said, And God said, Let us make man in our image. After our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Please notice that God made man for the purpose of having dominion. Now the word dominion means to rule or to reign over. God made man as to be the God of this world. Now some people have a hard time with that phrase. but it, and, and it doesn't mean that he made God or that God made man as his equal in the sense that he, God is the creator of the universe. Man is certainly not, can't be, and so forth. But he made man to be the ruler or the one in charge over this earth. And we know that man lost that position when he was deceived by Satan, or actually the Bible says uh, Eve was deceived, Adam wasn't. And so they, uh, their authority was usurped by the devil, and now 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that Satan is the God of this world. Now, the word world means age. Uh, Satan is not the God of this world for eternity. He's the God of this age until Jesus comes back for the church and, and sets things in order. But for a period of time, ending with, um, um, well, as far as the church is concerned, ending with the rapture, as far as the world is concerned, ending with the tribulation. Satan is the one that's in control. Now, for that reason, a lot of times people that don't understand how things work, don't understand what the Bible says about these issues, uh, a lot of people blame God for the things that the devil's doing in the earth. I know, uh, I don't know if it's a common thing now, but it used to be a common thing for um, uh, earthquakes and hurricanes and things like that and insurance policies and so forth to be called acts of God. Well, God's not the one doing stuff to destroy people. John 10.10 says that the thief comes but for to kill, steal, and destroy. Jesus said, but I'm come that you might have life. So anything that happens in the earth that kills, steals, or destroys is of the devil. No matter what label somebody attaches to it, it's the work of the devil. But that was a work that Jesus overcame when he came to the earth. We know in his earthly ministry, he operated in such a way that he had authority over the devil's power. He had authority over sickness. He had authority over disease. He had authority to do uh, even miraculous works that superseded the laws of nature. He walked on the water. He multiplied loaves and fishes. He did other such miracles. And as a result, everybody that came to him, even the religious leaders that didn't believe in him, recognized this guy is not your average prophet. He's got, some said, John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to him and said, Master, we know that you come from God because nobody can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. So they recognized that God was the only one that could change the physical laws of nature and do the miracles that Jesus did. That was culminated in uh, John chapter 11 when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That was the ultimate sign to the people, sign to Israel, that this indeed is the Messiah. Now, the problem with, uh, with most of the church's understanding about Jesus and his miracle working power is that they think that he did it because he was the son of God. 
But if he had done it because he was the son of God, how could he give that authority to other people who were not the sons of God? John, or, uh, what did I tell you? Luke chapter 10. If you look with me over in Luke chapter 10, it tells about a story where Jesus gave this authority or delegated this authority to the 70. He's already given it to the 12. But now he sends out 70 into the, uh, the surrounding territory cities that he would go, uh, plan to go to. He sent them to go before him. And he gave them certain instructions. He told them what to say. He told them what to do if the cities would receive him. And he said, even if the cities don't receive you, here's how you handle that. You shake the dust of your feet off against them and say, the kingdom of God was here, but it didn't do you any good because you refused it. Well, as a result, they come back and they report all the things that had happened. Verse 17 of Luke chapter 10. And the 70 returned again with joy saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. So they used the name of Jesus when Jesus was here on the earth. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now he's not saying that happened when you used my name. He's saying the reason my name works is because Satan is a defeated foe. Satan was cast down to the, into the earth before the Genesis account of creation ever occurred. We know that he must have been here because God told Adam and Eve to dress and keep the garden. Another translation says, or literally the, the Hebrew words mean to guard and protect it. Well, if there's not an enemy there, there's nothing to guard and protect it from. So Satan was already in the earth and God knew it when he looked at the earth and said it's very good after the recreation. And then he said, by the way, there's an enemy out there. Beware of him. And they didn't. So where Jesus is saying that Satan fell as lightning from heaven, he's talking about when he was cast out of heaven when he rebelled against God with a third of the angels. He's saying, literally, if you'll allow me to paraphrase this in my own way, he's saying, the devil is not your problem. Well, if the church ever got a hold of that, things would change. Some other church, of the church is complaining about the problems that they're having with the devil. Jesus is very simply saying, Satan is a defeated foe. The devil's not your problem. Now, the reason the devil's not their problem is because they've been given the name of Jesus. The reason the devil's not your problem or my problem is because we've been given the name of Jesus. I'm not saying anything about us and in ourselves. I'm not greater than the devil and neither are you. But in Christ, I am. And so are you. So he's literally saying the devil's not your problem. You know, I could just camp there for a while. Because if I could convince you that the devil's not your problem, then you would realize that your answer is right in front of you. But the devil wants you to think that he's your problem. And he wants you to think that the reason you can't get your answer or your victory is because he's such a great problem that you can't overcome. Jesus is very simply saying, oh yeah, the devil is defeated. That's a fact, by the way. He is a defeated foe. He's still your enemy, but he's defeated. So Jesus said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, because Satan is defeated, because my name is greater, behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Notice power is in that word twice in the English, but those are two different words in the Greek. The first word translated power means authority. The second word translated power means ability. So he's saying, I give you authority over all the devil's ability. And nothing shall by any means, that means there is no way around this, nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, he didn't say nothing will hurt your neighbor. He didn't say nothing shall by any means hurt your loved ones. 
He didn't say anything about it being your authority being able to be restricted or directed in such a way that nobody else gets hurt. But he's talking about authority for the individual. See, we run into problems when it comes to the subject of authority. The church runs into problems when we try to make it work for somebody else. And, and to be honest with you, those lines are not always clear. It's not always clear how much authority you have over somebody else's situation or in somebody else's situation. I know there have been times where I've exercised authority that I've been surprised that it worked. There have been other times where I expected my authority would work and it didn't. I don't have answers for those things. I've talked to the Lord about it and I don't get an answer. But I do know this. I know that the physical laws of nature, when God created the earth, the physical laws of nature were set up in such a way that they work every time. Then spiritual laws have to be that way too. Are you hearing me? Spiritual laws have to work the same every time if we, if, and I guess the key is for us to learn how to make those laws work or the boundaries under which those laws operate. Now turn with me to, uh, to back to Genesis chapter 1. Let me show you something here. If we can understand the basis for the laws of nature, and I, I, if you'll allow me this morning, I'm really just trying to tie up some loose ends. And we'll let the Holy Ghost lead us wherever he wants us to go. But that's one thing, probably the key point that the Lord has been dealing with me that started me on this uh, teaching this series anyway to begin with. And that is that the laws of nature are absolute, yet they can be overcome. The law of gravity, for example, is an absolute. You don't have to get out of the bed in the morning and put your foot on the floor to see if it's going to work. You don't give it a thought. You crawl out of bed. You don't hold your head in case you fly up and hit the ceiling. You expect it to work every time. Yet that law of gravity was superseded when Jesus walked on the water. That law of gravity will be superseded at the rapture, just like it was when Jesus was caught up in a cloud. You'll be caught up in the cloud when he comes back too. Well, that doesn't mean that gravity is suspended. It means that there's a greater power that will, that will supersede that law, that natural law of gravity. Jesus superseded the, some kind of physical law when he multiplied loaves and fishes. I don't know about you, but when I put food in my refrigerator, it does not multiply. That is not a natural course of things. Matter of fact, most of mine disappears. Right? But Jesus did something that superseded the natural laws. Whatever those laws, whatever law would be in, in effect that, that would govern that one. I, I don't even know how to define that one. But he did something that superseded the natural laws of nature or the, the natural laws, what we might call the laws of this earth, the laws of nature. So spiritual laws have to be the same because God created spiritual law in the same way that he created natural law. As a matter of fact, spiritual law was, was preceded or uh, was before natural law was ever created. Well, God's not going to be one way where it comes to natural law and a different way when it comes to spiritual law, right? So notice what natural laws were founded upon. Genesis chapter 1 Notice it says in verse 11, And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass and the herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind. Please notice that phrase, after his kind. Now the word kind literally means species. So in other words, it's saying God created every species. Not only is the, the, the idea of evolution contrary to Scripture, but the wording of the Scripture refutes evolution. Everything was created after its kind. In other words, one species doesn't turn into another one. 
In other words, a man can't come from an animal, an ape or a monkey or anything else. And no other species can come from a different species. God created each one individually according to the wording of the scripture. So God created uh, the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind. Notice this phrase, whose seed is in itself. Whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the seed yielding fruit, or the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind, and God saw that it was good. Please notice that phrase, God saw that it was good. In other words, God said, this is the way it works. This is the way I make it. This is the way it works. This is the law of nature. What is the law of nature? That everything produces after its kind and the seed is in itself. In other words, the source of producing results comes from within. We might summarize this and say God created as natural law the law of sowing and reaping. Because he's talking about things that grow in and of themselves or from themselves, from an inner source, an inner power. Well, if that's the law of nature and God said it was good, God never changes. That's going to be the basis of spiritual law too. In other words, the seed comes from within. Now, within, the Bible talks about, uses different terms. It talks about the inward man. talks about the inner man. It talks about the hidden man of the heart. All of those things have got to be talking about the real man, the real man on the inside, the spirit that God created in his image. All those terms are referring to the man on the inside. In other words, the seed from within. In other words, he's saying, or we could say it this way, spiritual law comes from the spirit of man. Spiritual law, the basis of spiritual law, the basis of sowing and reaping, the basis of producing after your own kind comes from the spirit of man. Now, here's the difference. In physical law, it comes down to the work of your hands. It comes down to actions and consequences. Spiritual law is a little different because there is no physical action. There is no spiritual action that's identified in the sense that we think of acting in, in uh, physical ways. See, we know, what the reaction, we know what the results of physical action are. If you drink, you get drunk. That's the physical reaction. If, if any, any, any action that you want to identify, that's why the Bible warns you. There's so much warning in the Old Testament about don't do this because there's a, there's a consequence. Don't do this because there's a result. I know a lot of people, especially young people, think that the the commandments of God, the Old Testament commandments of God were given specifically so that you never have any fun. But the reality is God's trying to keep you out of trouble. And there are physical consequences, natural consequences toward physical actions that create a problem. I've had my son many times ask me to bail him out of his problems. And I said, son, I gave you the wisdom to keep out of the problem to begin with. But you didn't value what I gave you. Now you're in your trouble. Well, it's not exclusive to him. I did that myself. So maybe different issues, but some still the same results. Spiritually, it's a little different. And here's the difference. Spiritual forces aren't exercised by physical action. Spiritual forces are exercised by words. That's why words are such a key element. That's why Jesus said, by your words, you shall be justified and by your words, you shall be condemned. In other words, spiritual laws are released and put into effect through the words of your mouth. 
Now, I, here recently, in, um, uh, we were teaching a series on uh, prayer, different kinds of prayer, and the Lord brought to my remembrance a situation that happened while I was with Brother Hagin. Uh, there was a gentleman, young man that was 39 years of age, and, uh, and uh, he, well, they thought that he had a stroke. They really weren't sure what happened to him, but the, the nearest thing that they described it as was a stroke. And so he was in the hospital, and he was in critical condition. There was a, a blood clot on the brain as a result of whatever happened, and, uh, and he's at the point of death. Well, 39 years of age, he's got two small children, wife and two small kids. That's too young to die. I think everybody would agree to that. And so everybody started praying. He, he went to the hospital. He prayed with the family. He came back to the, um, to the office, to the campus of the school, and he, he got everybody together. Most everybody had heard by the time he got back. So he gathered us all together and said, let's all pray. And then we had some special prayer meetings that night and uh, the next night uh, for, um, specifically for this guy's health and for him to come out of this situation. And so we prayed first night, prayed for a couple of hours, said, okay, Let's meet back here tomorrow night, same time. Let's pray. Second night, we're praying. In the middle of the prayer meeting, Brother Hagin stands up and says, Okay, we, we're done. And uh, dismissed everybody and said, Thank you for praying. God's word's true. Thank you, that, thank you, Father, that you always hear and answer our prayers and, and uh, kind of dismissed. And it was kind of a, a, an abrupt or sudden thing. Well, he told us later, some weeks later, after the situation had. Uh, um, well, after the, the guy died, the end result was the guy died and he had the funeral and, and so forth. He told us some, uh, some weeks or maybe even a couple of months later that while we were praying the second night, he said, uh, uh, he spoke to the Lord in his prayer and he said, Lord, you're not hooking up together with me about this. You're not taking hold with me on this. Now, I guess I got to do a little background here on this. Uh, Romans eight twenty six says, likewise, the spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what to pray for as we ought. It doesn't say we don't know what to pray for. It says we don't always know what to pray for like we ought to. In other words, when it comes to praying for other people, you don't always know their situation. Right? So he said, um, uh, Lord, you're not taking hold together with me. Here's why he said that. The word helpeth in Romans 8.26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. That word helpeth is made up from several different words. And it means literally this. To take hold together with against. Now, that may sound complicated, but if we, if we ask for some of these guys to come over and help us move the piano, I need four or five guys to help me move the piano. Well, if I pick up my end, I'm going to know when they pick up their end, aren't I? I'm going to know that, won't I? I'm going to feel them taking hold together with me against the weight of that piano. Well, it works that way in prayer. You pick up your end, but God's got to pick up his end too. Well, spiritually, you can tell if God's not picking up on his end. And that's what Brother Hagin's saying. He's saying, Holy Spirit, you're not taking hold with me on this thing. And the Lord spoke back to him immediately and said, no, and I'm not going to either. He said, well, Lord, why not? He said, because in two days or three days, whatever the case was, I don't remember exactly. He said, in, in a few days, he's going to die. And Brother Hagin asked him, he said, but Lord, he's 39 years old. He's too young to die. And the Lord said this to him. And Brother Hagin said he didn't understand what it meant for the, at the time that he said it. But the Lord spoke back to him and said, Spiritual laws have been set in motion, and they cannot be changed at this time. Spiritual laws have been set in motion, and they cannot be changed at this time. Well, Brother Hagin said, you know, he got up and didn't tell us what was going on. He just stood up and said, okay, well, no point in praying about it anymore, is there? So he stood up and dismissed the prayer meeting, and that was it. 
Well, he told us this, and, and again, he's relating the story some weeks or months later. He said that uh, over the next couple of days, it happened just the way the Lord said. The man died, and then the family was gathered together. Some came in from out of town and, and that type of thing for the funeral. And so they're at the, the, um, uh, the funeral home before the service. I think it was the night before. They had the viewing the night before the funeral service the next day. And so he said that um, he's standing there with, uh, with one of the family members. I believe it was his brother. And his brother said, you know, Jim always said that he had never lived to see 40. Well, that caught Brother Hagin's attention. He said, wait, 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 wait. What, what are you talking about? And he said, well, I remember one time we were down by the barn. They grew up on a farm. He said, I remember one time we were down by the, farm, uh, by the barn, and we had a, a rope swing set up down there in a tree. And he said, we were playing, just having a good time. And he said, we must not have been any more than 14 or 15 years old, something like that. He said, we're playing around, having a good time, doing, doing our thing like kids do. And he said, uh, all of a sudden, he got real serious. Jim got real serious. And he said, you know, I'm not going to live to see 40. And he, sa- he said, I asked him about it. He said, Jim, what are you talking about? He said, well, I, I just won't live to see 40. And about that time, his mother walked up on the conversation. And she heard what was being said. And she said, oh, yeah, he said that to me several times. And Brother Hagin said, well, what in the world would make him say that? And, she, and neither one of them knew. said, well, we never knew. We, we, we just passed it off as, you know, well, he's just talking, you know. They didn't understand that the spiritual laws were being set in motion. And that's what the Lord was telling him. He had been saying all of his life. Remember what we said, spiritual laws are exercised through words. He began to say, I'll never live to see 40. Well, he died just a few weeks before his 40th birthday. He got what he said. He got exactly what he said. See, folks, the reason that faith works is because faith is a spiritual law. And what does that mean? It means very simply this. When the rules of faith are followed, faith always works. Now, what spiritual laws have you put in motion? Are there things you want to happen or things you don't want to happen? Now, one of the things that the Lord said to me, said to Brother Hagin about this situation has always intrigued me. And that was, he said this, he said, spiritual laws have been set in motion. They cannot be changed at this time. That means if you put the wrong spiritual laws in motion, you can change them under some circumstances. Are you out there? Now, back to the story in Luke chapter 10. The, the 70 come back and they report, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Why in the world were the devils subject to them? What did they do? See, we start talking about spiritual authority and so many times people get kind of weird on you. And I think a lot of it is just due to immaturity. I, I know I made a lot of mistakes where exercising authority or where trying to exercise authority was concerned because I didn't understand the boundaries. And I heard these things and I got all excited and I thought, well, praise God, if I've got spiritual authority, I'm just going to change things the way I want them. And it didn't work. I stepped outside the boundaries that the Bible outlines. Now, notice again, Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verse 19, he said, behold, I give unto you authority. Not your neighbor. I'm giving it to you. He's talking to the individual about the individual's life. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, all of the enemy's ability. 
and nothing shall by any means hurt you. In other words, Jesus is saying there's no limit to your authority over the devil in your life. But you start going outside of your life and things that pertain to you and you alone, that's kind of a gray area in many cases. Now, what, why did it work for them? Why is Jesus telling them something that they already have? He's not. Jesus has given them authority to use his name. He's used, they've used the power that's in the name of Jesus, not the power that he has now seated at the right hand of the Father. He didn't have that then. Jesus, when he appeared to the disciples in, my, in uh, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. That word power is this word authority too. He said, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Jesus didn't have all authority in heaven and earth when he was here on the earth. The Bible says that, that Satan was stripped of his powers through Jesus' resurrection. Well, that's why Jesus appeared in Matthew 28 following his resurrection and said, all authority is given unto me. He did not have all authority here on the earth. He could not just show up on the earth and say, all right, now I'm here, Mr. Devil. Give me everything you've got. No, he got it through conquest. He obtained it through conquest. That's why the, the Jesus dying on the cross was necessary. That's why Jesus spending three days and nights in the, in the pit of hell was necessary. He died not only physically, he died spiritually. Why? So that you could not only live physically in the, in the blessings of God, but so that you could live spiritually. I know people have a hard time with that, the idea that Jesus died and went to hell. Well, where would you have gone without him? If he went anywhere other than where you would have gone on your own, then he can't be your substitute. I don't know how it gets any clearer than that. I know some people refuse to accept that, and, and that's okay. I'm not trying to prove myself right. I just want to know everything that Jesus did for me. That's why this is an issue for me. And when I understand the, the, the suffering of those three days and nights in the pit of hell that Jesus endured, which is what I believe he's drawn back from in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't believe Jesus is drawing back from the physical pain of the cross. He didn't even live as long on the cross as the two thieves on either side of him. I don't think Jesus is wimping out because of physical pain or the threat of physical pain that's facing him. I think he's drawing back from those three days and nights in the pit of hell. Because now all of the, the, the punishment of mankind is unleashed on him. He didn't just get a punishment as if a, an unrighteous man died. He got all of mankind's punishment upon him. That's what the Bible says. So that when Jesus was raised from the dead, when the power of God came back upon Jesus. Now, again, I know this is controversial in some people's mind and idea. It's not for me. The Bible's pretty clear on it in, on, in several places. But if Jesus was made alive in spirit, as the, as the Bible says, if he was made alive in spirit, then that means he had to be dead in spirit. Right? You can't be made alive in spirit unless you were once dead in spirit. So if Jesus was once dead in spirit, that means he was separated from God without any ability of his own to come back into life. I believe that's what Jesus is saying when he said, Father, into your hands, I come in my spirit. He's giving up. Remember, Jesus said when he was here on the earth, he said, no man can take my life. He said, the only way my life can be taken is if I lay it down. But on the cross, he's saying, now, Father, it's not in my hands anymore. I put my spirit in yours. In other words, if he's going to be alive again, I think that's when spiritual death finally took hold of him. If he's going to be alive in spirit again, it's going to be because of what God does, not because of what he does. Every point up until that, every, every moment up until that point in time, Jesus could have called the angels to get him down from the cross. 
But once he commends his spirit into the hands of the Father, he's spiritually dead. He has no authority. He has no rights. He's not even in power or position the Son of God any longer. He's made sin. Now, that's what the Bible says. Again, I know that's hard for some people to accept. So when Jesus dies and spends those three days and nights in hell, paying the price for mankind, when the life of God comes back in him, why don't you turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 2. This goes into Ephesians chapter 1. This goes along with some scriptures that we've already looked at. I think it'll fit in here. Ephesians chapter 1 where it says that Paul is praying that we would know, verse 19, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, he's not talking about raising him from physical death. He's talking about raising him from spiritual death. And set him in his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, which also that which is to come, and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. I like it better to say it this way, to head to the church over all things. See, Jesus wasn't made head over all things. He was made head to the church or head of the church over all things. Which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Verse, chapter 2, verse 1. And you hath he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, when you were quickened or made alive, were you made alive in body or in spirit? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says you were made alive just the same way Jesus was made alive. How were you made alive? If you want to know how Jesus was made alive, all you have to do is identify how you were made alive. Were you raised from the dead physically? Or made alive physically? No, you were already alive physically. Well, how were you made alive spiritually? If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. Old things have passed away and behold, all things become new. What things? You don't get a new eye color. You don't get a new hairdo. What do you get? Spiritual things become new. You become a new spirit. So when you were quickened, you were made a new spirit, which means when Jesus was quickened, because it's using the same verb, same verb, same action, and you have the quickened. In other words, when he raised from Christ from the dead is the same verb that he's tying back into, and you have the quickened. So you were made alive the same way Jesus was made alive, which has to be spiritually, which means Jesus had to be spiritually dead. Now, spiritual death is defined as separation from God. That's what makes hell, hell. It's not the flames that make hell the the place you want to avoid. It's the fact that that's a characteristic or a byproduct of being separated from God. Are you out there? So that's the power that Jesus received when he was resurrected and said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Well, then what power did he have or what authority did he have while he was here? Jesus appears in Revelation chapter 1 talking to John. And he said, behold, I am he that was alive. I am alive and was dead, but I live forevermore. He said, and I have the keys of hell and death. Jesus didn't have those when he was here. He has them now, but he didn't have them when he was here. That's what he stripped the devil of when he conquered him through his resurrection. He stripped the devil of the keys of hell and death. Now, 
what power or what's the difference in the authority or the position that he has now and what he had when he was here on the earth. Well, let's look at what the the, uh, 70 used in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus gave them authority to go into the cities before him. What did he tell them to do or what did they do that caused them to have um, that that even the devils were subject unto them in, in his name? They simply did what Jesus did, said what Jesus said to do, and that was it. We think of, uh, of people that walked around with Jesus here on the earth, and, and I think a lot of times we get, uh, um, well, we get stars in our eyes about Bible stories because we see things that people did, and we think, wow, man, when Peter walked on the water to go to Jesus, he must have had some kind of faith. Well, don't forget he sank. He did start off in faith, but he sank. And it's after that that Jesus upbraids him for his unbelief and not accepting that he's going to the cross and going to be raised from the dead. We see people produce these miracles in the name of Jesus or at God's will in the, in the, uh, the Old Testament in many cases and in the, the four Gospels. And we think, wow, they were really something. They didn't have what you have. They weren't even in the same class as you. They weren't saved. They didn't have a knowledge of God like you have a knowledge of God as far as what belongs to you because you're in Christ Jesus. They weren't in Christ Jesus. How could they know that? Then how did they get the results that they got? Most of the church I know would be, church people I know would be willing to settle for the, the, the disciples' results. Pre-salvation. How did they get those results, folks? It's very simple. They didn't go around with some inner strength. They didn't go around with some inner power. They didn't have any inner strength or inner power. They were always getting in trouble for not believing Jesus. Well, what did they do? They said what Jesus said. And then they did what they saw him do. That's it. That's what governs spiritual law. Yet instead, what we do is we listen to the devil's attacks. We listen to the devil's condemnation. We hear the devil say, well, you don't have what it takes. You need to believe more. So then what do we do? We try to believe more. That's like when people say, well, I prayed hard about that. I always wonder, what does that mean? Shut your eyes real tight and gritted your teeth and clenched your fist. What does that mean? I prayed hard. See, folks, we're so used to exerting physical energy. When spiritual force has nothing to do with physical energy. Natural law does, but spiritual law doesn't. Spiritual law doesn't. Let me show you an example. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, we'll start reading in verse 16. It said, and there came to, it came to pass as we went to prayer that a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination, in other translations is fortune telling, met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying or fortune telling. The same followed Paul and us and cried, these men are the servants of the most high God, which do show unto us the way of salvation. This did she many days. Please notice that. This did she many days. Now she's saying was right. Paul and his company are there to show them the way of salvation, to show the city of Ephesus the way of salvation. Or I, I'm sorry, not the city of Ephesus, the city of Philippi, the way of salvation. But God doesn't want the devil's advertisement, apparently. But she does this many days. Now, I don't know how many, many, I don't know how many, many is. But it's more than a few. 
So what does that mean? Does that mean she did it a week? Does that mean she did it a month? I don't know. But she did it long enough for the Holy Ghost to say many days. But then notice it says, But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And he came out the same hour. Now the word hour can be, is uh, translated once or used once. Same word is used in the Scripture to mean instant. It means a period of time. Most often it's translated to mean an hour as in 60 minutes. But the, the word that's used, it could mean he came out right away. We don't know. But we have to assume that it was a quick result. Because Paul and his company were still there. It's not like Paul, as they were on their way to prayer, he commanded this evil spirit to come out of him and then stood there for an hour waiting for it to happen. They're being interrupted on their way to prayer. It'd be like you on your way to drive into L.A. and something happened and you pull off to the side of the road and wait till it clears up before you keep going. Well, none of us would do that. That's not the reason we were there. We're on our way to L.A. We'd keep driving on. So it says to me that it happened a lot quicker than just a 60-minute period of time. The word supports that, or at least supports the possibility of that. So anyway, it said it came out the same hour. Now let me ask you a question. Why wasn't Paul grieved on the first day? Clearly, it's the authority that he used in the name of Jesus to set this little girl free. Why didn't he use it on day one? If it's Paul, if it's about Paul, and if it's about Paul's authority, why didn't Paul decide to use it on the first day? Surely, Silas or one of his other co-workers there as a part of the company would have said, Paul, why don't you do something about that? Who in the group would have let this thing go on for many days if they had the ability to stop it at their own will? Now, some people will hear this and say, well, are you saying the authority of Jesus is not complete? No, I'm saying you don't, have all, you don't always have authority to use the name of Jesus to change something in somebody else's life. Remember what Jesus said to the 70, Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. In other words, what he's saying is, you've been using my authority when you entered these other cities because I commissioned you to do it. But now I'm telling you that you have authority over the devil in every respect in your own life. Why didn't he say, behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy that you can use whenever you want to to keep doing the same work that I commissioned you to do? I don't know if you know this or not, but them going into the cities was a short-term mission trip. And they had a different authority on that short-term mission trip than they seemed to have when they came back and Jesus talked to them. Why? Because they were commissioned on the missions trip. Now the missions trip is over. So what authority does they have? Jesus said, you have authority over all the devil's power in your own life, always. Well, it wouldn't make sense that we'd have less authority than they would, does it? Because we have a greater position. And you hath he quickened. And has raised us up together with Christ to be seated in heavenly places. So you don't have less authority. You've got more authority. That's why the Bible says whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now I wish I could bind and loose in your life. If I could bind and loose in your life I could help you out a lot more than I can now. But I can't. Except in certain circumstances... 
as, as identified or used as an example in Acts chapter 16. Now I can tell you from my own experience what didn't happen. Paul didn't wake up on this final day, whatever this day was that he finally got grieved. He didn't wake up and say, you know, today I'm going to do something about that little girl. I'm going to cast the devil out. That's not the way it works. I can tell you from experience that this was a spur of the moment thing. It happened and the Holy Spirit moved upon Paul just like that. And he turned around and said the evil spirit come out of her and he did. So I guess that begs this question. How do you get the Holy Ghost to do it earlier? Man, if anybody comes up with that answer, I want to hear it. Would it have changed the story? If this had happened on day one, would that have made the story any less spectacular? Not in my thinking. If it said, and, there, and, and this little girl met us. She was a fortune teller, and she met us. And she said this, and Paul immediately turned around and said, come out of her in the name of Jesus. That makes the story just as miraculous to me as it does as it is written. Wouldn't it you? So why many days? I don't have an answer for that. Nobody else does either. We can't determine when God moves on somebody to do something about the situation. And it's clear that Paul couldn't do it on his own prior to that point in time. Let me show you another example. Turn with me over to Philippians chapter 2. Here's one that uh, critics of healing think they've got us stumped with. But they don't. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, beginning in verse 25, he said, Yet I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor, and fellow soldier and your messenger. The word messenger there is apostle. And your apostle. In other words, apostle means sent one. In other words, what it's saying is, God gave Epaphroditus something special for the Philippians that he didn't give him for the Ephesians or the Colossians or the Romans or anybody else. There are certain people that you're called to. There are certain situations that you're called to. There are certain works, ministry works that somebody is called to. This idea that I'm just a minister to the body of Christ. Well, praise you. Let's give God part of the glory. You know? I think a lot of times we get too high an opinion of ourselves. Epaphroditus was an apostle to the Philippians. He was an apostle to the Philippians. So was Paul, but Paul was also an apostle to the Corinthians. He said to the Corinthians, if I'm an apostle to anybody, I'm an apostle to you. Why? Why did he have to seem to have something more there than he had for somebody else? Well, the, what they're sent for, what Paul is sent for and what Epaphroditus is sent for are two different things. Paul is sent regarding the message. Epaphroditus is sent because God has laid these people on his heart. Are you out there? Okay, so he said, I'm sending to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in the Lord and fellow soldier, but your messenger or apostle, and he that ministered to my wants. He's an apostle to you, but he ministers to my wants. He takes care of the things that I need. For he longed after you. Here's why I'm sending him, because you heard about him. He longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that you had heard that he had been sick. I want you to notice something, folks. Paul doesn't shy away from saying somebody was sick. Therefore, Paul's thorn couldn't have been sickness. 
Paul wouldn't have said this thing, this thorn in the flesh was sent to buffet me. He would have said, I was sick. There's no, there's no reason for him to say somebody else in his company was sick and him not to say that he was sick if he really was. Thank you for your enthusiasm. So he was full of heaviness because you had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick nigh unto death. He was at the point of death in other words. But God had mercy on him and not on him only but upon me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him therefore the more carefully that when you see him again you may rejoice and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such in reputation. In other words, don't think bad about him because he was sick. Well, then we shouldn't think bad about people who get sick now. Hello. Verse 30. Notice he's going to tell you why he was sick. There's always a reason, folks. Sometimes the reason is because I'm being attacked of the devil. But sometimes it's something that somebody does that that opens the door and creates a situation. That was the case with Epaphroditus. That was the case with an apostle, somebody that God had set apart as an apostle. Because for the work of Christ, he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life. One translation says, having recklessly exposed his life to supply your lack of service toward me. In other words, he's saying he was at the point of death because he overworked himself. He was trying to do things to provide for me meaning working to provide money for me that you guys weren't doing your part to provide. So why was he sick? He was sick because he worked himself to death or worked himself to the point of death. Which tells you being called to the ministry doesn't give you a pass on having to take care of your body. Hello? Hello? See, you can't think that you're going to be strong enough in faith to supersede the, the, the natural process or principles of taking care of yourself and, and operating in a healthy manner. Brother Hagin said during the heathen revival, people got so goofy on the things they were believing for that sit down and eat like a horse and then try to cast out the calories from their body. Man, don't we wish that worked. I guess that's spiritual purging, you know. <laughs> People get goofy on things when they get out apart from the word. But notice the situation with Epaphroditus. He's at the point of death because he worked himself nearly to death. So that tells us what the cause is. How did he get well? Now, if this had been simply a matter of Epaphroditus' faith that brought him out of this, first of all, he's going to have to do some repenting for having abused his body. But if this had been a matter of Epaphroditus and his faith, don't you think Paul would have told him that so that he could hold them up in their eyes and their esteem? Wouldn't Paul have said, and, but Epaphroditus' faith was strong and he pulled through? That would have made him think even better about the guy, wouldn't it? Which is what he's trying to do anyway. He's saying hold him in high regard, hold him in reputation, think well of him. But he didn't credit his faith. So that tells me it must not have been a matter of his faith. Well then how did he get healed? It says by God's mercy. How did they obtain the mercy of God? You know what this says to me? It says Paul got, his, got Epaphroditus healing through prayer. 
because this affects him. I would have sorrow upon sorrow. I don't want to, I don't want to have to bury one of my guys. So what's he doing? Well, one thing he's not doing is Paul's not exercising authority saying, Epaphroditus, don't worry because you are with me. I am the guy. It's me and Jesus. So I just take authority over this sickness and command it to leave his body. That wouldn't have been God's mercy. So Paul would have misidentified what really happened. When he said it was the mercy of God, it tells me that it was not the authority that Paul had as an apostle and it was not the faith that Epaphroditus had as a believer. So it had to be something else. I assume that that's prayer. I could be wrong. There may be something else that I'm not considering. But we know that it wasn't authority. Why wasn't Paul able to exercise authority over his own ministry company to bring him back from death? Anybody know the answer to that? Because Paul didn't have that authority. That's the only possible explanation. Paul didn't have that authority. But you have absolute, according to Scripture, you have absolute authority over the devil in your own life. Now, that doesn't mean you can stop every attack that the devil brings. That's what I believe that that Paul's thorn in the flesh, the story about Paul's thorn in the flesh, is misinterpreted and misunderstood about in Scripture. Because what Paul is talking about is the devil is bringing persecution against me. Whether you know this or not, and I, I hope you learn this, Christ did not redeem you from persecution. In fact, Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Paul said, they that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, which explains why most people are not persecuted. You'll get that later. Christ didn't redeem you from persecution. So Paul's thorn, the whole thing about Paul's thorn is not that I have authority over the devil that can stop him from bringing any attack that he wants to against me. The story is to tell you that even when he attacks, the devil can't steal your victory. You can still, by the finished work of Jesus, the grace of God, you can still operate in such a way so that you live in victory over the persecution or the attacks the enemy brings. How far does that authority go? In um, 19, I think it was about 1920, early 1920s, there was uh, in Houston, Texas, uh, E.M. Ritchie. Any of you, maybe some of you have heard me talk about or maybe some of you have read after Raymond Ritchie, Raymond T. Ritchie. He was one of the gentlemen in the uh, um, heating revivals back in the 50s, uh, mid to late 50s and early 60s. And um, uh, I'm sorry, mid to late 40s and early 50s. That, uh, that were used in a great way from, uh, by God. Well, he comes from a ministry family. His dad was E.M. Ritchie. And uh, Dr. Ritchie started in uh, Houston, Texas, uh, the original evangelistic temple. There still is one there today, but it's not the same church. It's not the same building that they use. And um, Brother Ritchie was called by all the younger ministers, Dad Ritchie. I mean, he was, he was a guy that everybody respected respected and looked up to he had uh, I think he had four boys and all four of these boys including Raymond became uh, used of God in a great way and ministers in their own right and uh, uh, Dr. Ritchie was uh, was preaching and during his uh, in his sermon he uh, he stopped paused looked off to the side and he's got some kind of microphone set up so everybody heard him he looked off to the side and said you'll have to wait until I finish my sermon and then turned back around and went back to preaching. Well, nobody knew what was going on. Nobody knew what was happening. And then after, as soon as he finished his sermon, 
He walked over on the platform. They had some big high back chairs set up on the platform. He walked back over on the platform, sat down. There was a few preliminary things or, or you know, follow-up things that they were doing at the end of the service. He sat down, leaned his head over, and died. So the front page of the Houston Chronicle or Houston paper, whatever it's called, the front page reports the next day on the front page above the fold, big headlines, big bold letters, pastor, Houston pastor rebukes death, tells it to wait. I don't know know about you, but finishing your sermon and going home, that's kind of a good way to go. But that's exactly what he did. The Bible says that when we die, an angel receives us. So whatever angel came for him, he just stopped and said, you'll have to wait. Not finished yet. Got a couple of more points. Sat down in the chair and went home. Let me leave you with with this question. Does the church have power and authority over the devil's power that we don't know we have? In my opinion, unquestionably, yes. Now, here's how Paul talked about it. Paul referred not just to power of the devil, but power of the devil's system. To the Galatians, Galatians 3.13, he said, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. To the Romans, he said, in Romans chapter 8, verse 2, he said, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made made us free from the law of sin and death. So the curse of the law and the law of sin and death got to be the same thing. Got to be the same thing. Redemption is the spirit of life, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Those are spiritual laws, folks. There is a law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that has set you free from the law of sin and death. In other words, Satan's system. Now, to the Colossians, he said it this way. He said, God has made us able or meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints, having delivered us from the power of darkness. He calls the law of the spirit of life, I'm sorry, he calls the law of sin and death the power of darkness. And he said, and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. What is the kingdom of his dear son? The spiritual law of the life of, spirit of life in Christ Jesus. To the Ephesians, he talked about being raised by the power of God far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that's named. I could go on and give you other examples, but the point is simply this. The revelation of who we are in Christ Jesus, seated with Christ in heavenly places, very simply means there's a system that has been defeated. There's a system, a world system that has been defeated. Now, let me leave you with this. I'm trying to tie up loose ends, so I may leave you with five different things at the end. I don't know. But remember when Jesus said, you might have to turn to this because you might, we don't usually emphasize this. In Luke chapter 10, where the 70 come back and said, even the, even the devils are subject unto us in your name. Jesus said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Then it goes on in the next verse and says, notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the devils are subject unto you but that your names are written in heaven. Remember that? In other words, he's saying, don't make the major focus that you've got authority over the devil. Make the major focus the life that you have in me. 
Now, here's what the church has done with this. The church has taken that and ignored that we have authority over the devil and just focused solely on the fact that our names are written in heaven. But most Christians don't have a clue what your name written in heaven really means. They think that just means, well, we're forgiven from sin, but I guess we'll just have to suffer here on the earth till Jesus comes back. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Jesus is not saying to ignore that you have authority over the devil. He's saying, don't make that the major point. In other words, the devil should be such a little problem for us that it's not even a major issue. Our authority over the devil should be exercised and utilized through our words, the seed from within, everything producing after its own kind, should be exercised by us in such a commonplace manner so that it's a side issue or a byproduct of the fact that our names are written in heaven. We're redeemed by the work of our Lord and Savior. How many Christians do you know that are living like that? As opposed to Christians that are talking about how much trouble they're having with the devil. Are you out there? Folks, your words are everything. Now, I wish I could tell you that it works magically. I wish I could tell you that you could read the scriptures one time and and start acting on it and it works. But that's not the way it works for me. There are things that I still have questions on. Not about authority in my own life. But even at that, even the exercise of authority in your own life doesn't mean you get instant results. There's still a standing of faith involved. And we're so accustomed to operating according to natural law, the things that we see and feel, that it takes a while for it to sink in and to retrain ourselves or, as Paul said, renew our minds to how things work spiritually. But there comes a point where it settles down on the inside of you where you know that you know that you know. And if you, through just sheer determination of will, refuse to give up your stand of faith. Refuse to give up because God's word says so and God's word cannot lie. Then you'll come to the place where you will exercise authority over the devil in every respect. Just as Jesus said. But it's up to you. But I know this. I know that spiritual laws are just as consistent and just as absolute as natural laws. It's up to us to find out how to make them work. Let's pray.